0: When I lived in a share house, I thought I'd do something really nice for one of my housemates. It was his birthday, so I decided to make him a cake. And the first part of my decision was was the right decision. I I went and bought a packet mix from Coles. I opened the packet, I tipped it in the bowl, I put in an egg and some water and poured the mixture into a cake tin and into the oven it went. Uh, Twenty or so minutes later, I went to check on the cake And it looked kind of the same as when it went in. It was pretty much a a sloppy puddle in a cake tin. So I went back and looked at the back of the box again. And then I looked at the measuring jug I'd used and I realised my mistake. In my rush, I hadn't put in one cup of water, but one pint which was about, for those who, like me, have no idea about imperial measurements, that's quadrupling the amount of water. But I'm pretty smart. I was raised by wise parents, parents who knew also how to save money if you were here a few weeks ago. I didn't want anyone to know my incompetence, so I thought, hey, well, there's a bit of extra water in the cake. Why don't I just add a bit more flour? And it's a chocolate cake. I'll just throw in a bit of extra cocoa because surely that'll even things out. So I did that, gave it a bit of a stir, whacked it back in the oven... I think it took about another hour to be kind of cake-like in appearance. And then I got it out of the oven, put a candle on top and waited for the praise of my housemates. There was no praise. I don't even think my housemate thanked me for the thought. There are times when even the thought doesn't count. The cake was horrible. To say it tasted like glue would be an insult to glue. Sometimes you make a mistake... And you think you can get away with it and that no one will notice. Maybe your mistake will turn out okay. But what if it's not a a cooking mistake but something wrong, something sinful? It's devastating when we hear of someone who has said they're a Christian but they've lived a double life for years, a life based on lies. It's devastating when we hear about it and often for the person, they may not have been saying it out loud But for years, they've been saying to themselves, oh, it's not that bad. Jesus will forgive me anyway. Or even worse, it can't actually be a sin. I've worked really hard for God, so I actually deserve this bit of self-indulgence. They think they can cover it up, but eventually the truth comes out. And often we absorb the values of of our culture around us, and we don't even realise it. And so instead of loving what God loves... We love what our culture loves. That's the kind of thing that's been going on in Malachi's day. God's people think that they're getting away with sin and evil. They no longer think God cares. Maybe they think God actually approves of how they're living and God is sick and tired of it. So have a listen to verse 17. So Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them or where is the god of justice Are you shocked hearing that God is weary God is all powerful we just saying you know he's the mighty super savior Psalm 121 says he never sleeps He always watches over his people. That's what our faith is based on, that God never sleeps so we can sleep. How can the all-powerful, all-sovereign God become weary? It can't mean he's physically tired. It's picture language. It's saying God's people are testing his patience. And how are they testing his patience? By questioning where the God of justice is. Now, this could be a good question to ask when you're suffering, when you feel under attack, uh, when you feel under attack from people or circumstances or your own sin. It's good to cry out to God, "Where are you? I need your help." That's not what's going on in Malachi's day. They've decided the God of justice is never going to come, so they can get away with whatever they like. And if you ever look down at verse five, you can see the kind of evil that they're doing, and, and they, don't, they don't even care. Malachi 3.5. So I, this is God speaking, I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Man alive. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the law God gave his people, Israel, at Sinai, is there a commandment they're not breaking? They're looking for power from sources opposed to God. They've got no problem lying and breaking promises, promises to one another and to their spouse. They steal by ripping off their workers. They're not paying them fairly. They take advantage of vulnerable people, using power to oppress widows, orphans and foreigners, refugees and migrants. God sees what they do. And the warning of verse 5, if you want the God of justice, you can't handle the God of justice. Every person will stand trial. The truth will come out. Verse 5 cuts to the heart. It cuts us to the heart. It seems to be human nature to call out the sins of of the people who aren't my people, but then we turn a blind eye to the sins committed by my tribe. But God doesn't. The Bible cuts across our our one-sided views of goodness and justice. The Bible calls out sins of both the woke progressives and the family value conservatives. The conservative family value types might cheer God condemning sorcery and adultery. The progressive types might cheer God condemning oppression of workers, the poor and the marginalised, widows and refugees. But God isn't constrained by our polarised views of right and wrong. This is serious. We, we need to listen to God, not TikTok or talkback radio. Because when we do that, we get a one-sided view of sin and we're quick to call out the sins of others and we turn a blind eye to our own sin. And when this infection takes hold, we end up being like the people of Malachi's day. We call evil the evil that our tribe approves, we call it good whilst we enjoy the hypocrisy of pointing the fingers at others. History is littered with the examples of Churches absorbing the values of their day and calling evil good. In the 17 and 1800s, some Christians had no problem enslaving people because of their skin color. One of the great evangelists, George Whitfield, who partnered with John Wesley, who procl- to proclaim Christ across England and America. There's lots to be admired about him. Huge number of people were saved, but he enslaved people of color. To build an orphanage, it makes your head spin. How could you do that? Calling evil good. Or the many churches that cover up abuse, protecting their reputation at the expense of innocent people, they're failing to do justice, it's calling evil good. Or you may have heard recent news from the Church of England Their synod has approved services to bless relationships that God says are sinful, calling evil good. Now, now listen closely. I'm not mentioning these things to make us feel arrogant. It's not to point the finger at them and make us feel superior. But all these people, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they're pleasing God and doing good. They can't see. And it raises the question, where are we blind? Where do we not even see our sin, but future generations, or maybe Christians, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, they look at the way we live, and they go, are you guys, are you, do you have no idea what the Bible says? How can we call evil good? It's a reminder for us to be humble and to keep listening to God's word. And this is serious because as we hear in Malachi, For those who asked if God would ever bring justice and judgment, the answer is, yes, justice is coming. Are you ready for it? Chapter 3, verse 1, in response to where is the God of justice, God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to the temple The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we need to pause here because what God says makes makes your head scratch. No, it doesn't make your head scratch. It makes you scratch your head. Uh, This verse is talking about the day of the Lord, uh, something many of the earlier prophets spoke about. They spoke about the day of the Lord, uh, which is the day God deals with sin the day he will save his people by punishing and destroying his enemies. In Malachi's day, God's people have been returned from exile, but they're they're looking around at still the situation they're in and they're wondering if that day will ever come. And God's answer is, yes, it's going to come, but have a look at at those verses. It's, It's strange how God describes that day. Look again at verse 1. It raises a bunch of questions. Is there one person or is there two? Malachi says God is sending a messenger and then he says the Lord they're seeking will come and then at the end of the sentence it sounds like the Lord is the messenger. So are they two titles for one person or two separate people? I don't think we can untangle that in Malachi alone. The messenger. The messenger is called the messenger of the covenant. Covenant means a solemn promise that creates a relationship. Last week we heard marriage is a covenant, one man and one woman publicly promising lifelong faithfulness, and that promise creates a new family. In this verse, I think the covenant is the one made at Sinai and restated in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the promise God made to Israel, the Lord would be their God, they would be His people. The covenant made the holy nation. This this covenant, the one at Sinai, comes with obligations, a law to be kept. Uh, The Ten Commandments are part of that law. And Deuteronomy 28 makes it clear, if God's people keep the covenant, if they obey God, they'll be blessed. If they break covenant, they'll be cursed. God will punish them. And so the messenger of the covenant, it's gonna be someone who maybe reminds them of this covenant. Or rather gives God's assessment. Have they kept covenant? And remember verse 5, which, which we looked at before. Verse 5 says, the messenger's not gonna be bringing good news. So it's got kind of two questions, isn't it? Is it one person or is it two? The other question is, what's the messenger of the covenant on about? The other question though, and I think this is the one we really want to focus on today, who is the Lord they are seeking? So look carefully at verse 1, Malachi 3.1. At the end of the sentence we read, says the Lord Almighty. The word Lord there is in all capital letters. But the Lord they are seeking isn't written in all capitals. Now, some of you might be having little flashbacks to high school English, maybe even primary school English, and getting a little jittery. This is not going to be a grammar lesson. This is actually going to be about understanding the Bible. In most English translations of the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, the name of God, which is sometimes pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah, in our translations, God's name isn't translated or transliterated that way. It's written as L-O-R-D in all capital letters. So when you read capital L-O-R-D, or capitals, that's what's happening. It's the name of God is behind that. And the reason for this is, for thousands of years, when Jewish people read the scriptures in Hebrew, when they read the divine name, they don't pronounce it. They don't say Yahweh or Jehovah, however they want to pre- uh, um, articulate it. And most likely the reason they do this is they don't want to accidentally use his name in vain. And so instead of saying the name, they say the Hebrew word, which means Lord. And most English translations keep the same tradition. So capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's God's name. But when we read Lord and it's not all capitals, it can just mean a human master or boss. It's like calling someone Sir. It could also, though, be referring to God. So look again at verse 1. Who is this Lord? Where does he go? Where does this Lord or Master go? He goes into his temple. Now that gets your attention. If a prophet or priest, a nobleman or king were to go into the temple of God in Jerusalem, you wouldn't say he went into his temple, you'd say he went into God's temple. So this is very strange. The way verse one sounds, the Lord coming into His temple, well, it could just mean God being spiritually present in the temple, like when Solomon first built the temple, the God's glory filled the temple in a visible, cra- a cloud. But verse one doesn't sound like that. It sounds more personal, more physical what's going on? Well, Malachi didn't give his first hearers long to scratch their heads because in verse two, the warning sounds when the messenger, when the Lord comes into his temple, he's going to clean things up. Verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Uh, This washing and purifying sounds great. Right now, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, you probably want a shower right now. When you're hot and sweaty on days like today, you just can't wait to have a a cool shower and and wash the sweat off. Or when you've been working in the, the shed and you get out the grit soap and clean off the grease and oil, it feels good. It feels good unless you are the grease and grime. Unless you're full of impurity, like God's people in Malachi's day. We've been hearing it for the last few weeks. They sneer at God's love. They offer impure and worthless sacrifices. The blokes are treating their wives with contempt. And so the day of God's coming, the day of God's cleansing is not a day to look forward to. The day of the Lord, the day when God will rescue his people from their enemies. But what if the enemies are inside the gates? What if because of their sin, because calling evil good, what if if they are their own worst enemy? This is a serious, a hard warning. But in verse 4, there's good news. The good news is God's goal. So the idea of being purified and cleansed, I think that is serious, a serious warning, but... Have a listen to God's goal. It's not to destroy his people, but to draw them back to himself. He wants them washed and refined so they can be his people and he can be their God. The goal is a renewed covenant with a pure people. So the question is, has God kept his promise? Has he achieved his goal? It's been about 2,400 years since Malachi spoke as we think about history, as we look around our world, as terrorism and war rages, as abusers are protected, as sinful identities are celebrated, as we look at ourselves, we might ask the same question. Where is the God of justice? Maybe the people in Malachi's day were right. Maybe there is no right or wrong. Maybe it's not worth trying to be Good, because what good comes of it? Maybe it's a waste of time waiting on God. But a couple of hundred years after Malachi spoke, a messenger came. And a bunch of significant things happened in God's temple in Jerusalem. The messenger gets mentioned again in Malachi chapter 4. So we'll come back to thinking about him then. Today we're going to focus on the Lord coming to his temple. A few hundred years after Malachi spoke, a man named Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem. From the start of his ministry, his message was, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The day has come. The kingdom is here. Are you ready? And Jesus spoke with authority, unlike any other person, he did amazing things that only God can do. And after riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts off, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the next day Jesus came into the temple of the Lord and have a listen to what happened. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The day comes for the temple. The Lord has come into his temple and they're not ready. It's full of greed. It's so full of commerce and capital that people can't pray. They've got no concern for the God of justice. They're so blind to their sin. They think God delights that they're selling doves for sacrifice. They can't see that by doing that, by setting up their markets in the temple courts, that the nations can't come in to pray to the living God. They can't see their greed and robbery in the place of prayer. But Jesus can. Jesus, the one who has performed miracles only God can do. Jesus, who speaks with God's authority. Jesus, come into the temple. Is it is it his temple? And he begins to clean it up, driving out impurity and greed. But that's only the beginning. A few days later, the religious leaders, those who profited from the temple's corruption, a few days later, the religious leaders have Jesus arrested and conspire with the political powers to have him crucified. And as Jesus hangs in the darkness, breathing his last, God's judgment is enacted on the temple with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think as the curtain is torn, two things are going on. What's most often noticed is this is good news. The curtain has been a barrier separating people from God and God from people. And as Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, the barrier is removed. But there's another thing going on, not as often noticed, but I think more significant. The tearing of the curtain is judgment on what the temple has become. For too long, the temple has been desecrated and defiled by hypocrisy and worthless sacrifices, by people who call evil good. And as God tears the curtain top To bottom. He is judging the temple. The Lord has come to his temple and it's been found wanting. Who can endure the day of his coming? Yet in Christ, in the cross and the torn curtain, there is hope. Because through Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the temple, the true temple, through Jesus, we can be clean. In his death, Jesus takes the punishment his people deserve. The justice of God is poured out on God the Son. So now anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven and restored to God, washed clean of sin. When we stand on trial, the verdict will be not guilty because of Jesus. Because although the Lord has come to the stone temple in Jerusalem... And he could not endure the day of his coming. Yet Jesus himself is the tr- true, new and eternal temple. And through the spirit, he makes us, his people, into a holy temple. Uh, 1 Peter says, As you come to him, it's talking about Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stone, living stones, spiritual house, sacrifices, it's all temple language. And there are, once again, two linked truths here. Jesus is the living stone. He is the temple. No longer do we, we need, do we go to a, a stone temple. No, we go to Jesus to be purified and refined. And as His pure people, we are joined to Him. We are built into His temple. As God's people, as, as a church, we are the fulfillment of the temple. Malachi 3, 3 to 4, God promises that once more his people will be able to bring acceptable offerings. 1 Peter says, that's us. As we trust in Jesus and live for him, as we proclaim the the good news of Jesus by our words, we are the fulfillment of God's promise. We offer acceptable sacrifices, acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God. So, church, let's do that. Let's hear the warning. We must not call evil good. We must not weary God. But we also can, must cling to the fact that through faith in Christ, we are his holy temple. Let's pray. Father God, we admit that like in Malachi's day, there are ways we call evil good. We think we want the God of justice, but actually we want you to punish those people. And we forget how, apart from Jesus, we could not stand your justice. We thank you so much for Jesus. We praise you that Christ is the true temple, that when we come to him, we come to you, that when we see him, we see God, we're amazed that, By the Spirit who dwells in us, you make us living stones in your holy temple. Strengthen us to be your holy temple. Reveal our blind spots, that we might be transformed to be more like Jesus. Help us to not call evil good, but to be holy as you are holy. And may we do this for Jesus' glory. Amen.